you don't have to kind of work for the man, you don't have to necessarily conform and you know there can be more to life than just getting a nine-to-five office job and actually yeah. you, you can make your own way and do your own thing and have lots of fun doing it. We've made some good decisions but you know luck played a huge part in it. Um, we caught the flat white wave really nicely, yeah. we caught the kind of silicon roundabout wave really nicely you know and it was so lucky to have such an amazing first and, and prominent first location. The feeling that the need for this building was to be a meeting point and then kind of the coffee thing just happened. We changed the layout of bars and we realised we bought the wrong till system and realised we bought the wrong this and we just slowly iterated and iterated and iterated. There were loads of mistakes and loads of challenges. If you've got the core of kind of something that people want, you can have enough breathing space to figure that out. Our eating habits are changing. We're demanding better dining experiences and the food market has never been so competitive. Starting and succeeding with a food business is challenging, but some determined and passionate entrepreneurs are flourishing. These people have big dreams, big passion and big drive. They are disruptors, change makers and innovators. They see a positive future. Many say that food business is too risky. Some say that it has huge rewards. Are you up for the challenge? We had David Abramovich in today from Grind Coffee. David launched in 2011 after taking over his father's uh, mobile phone shop just at Old Street Roundabout. He at the time was actually part of another uh, tech business and he got Grind up and running whilst he was still working full time in the other business. He's since grown it to multiple locations. He's built an amazing brand and really what I got out of the interview was that he focuses on the front facing elements. So he focuses on building the brand, the culture within the team, uh, the environment is super important and obviously the food, the coffee and the general product. The back-end elements such as systems and controls, they all came at a later date. And he's been super successful on crowdfunding, three times he's raised, done phenomenally well, and the business has just gone from strength to strength. So yeah, I really enjoyed speaking to David. Uh, he comes across as a true entrepreneur and some really great insights into starting and scaling a food-focused business. So I hope you enjoy it. So it'd be great to start just on your earlier years and growing up, like just to find out, like were you always entrepreneurial or where did that spirit come from, do you think? Sure, um, so yeah, so growing up, um, you know, went to school, came out of school, went into university. I don't think I did a huge amount of school more than anyone else did, uh, did young entrepreneurs kind of association stuff at school. Um, but I definitely, uh, saw that my dad was quite entrepreneurial and he never really um, kind of fit the mold. He'd always done his own thing. So he'd started off doing uh, market stalls, selling fashion that he imported from Italy. Then he'd moved that into um, actual high street stores, um, still selling fashion. And then kind of overnight, pretty much in the early 80s, flipped that into uh, selling mobile phones. Um, and he'd always was doing a bit of property or something else on the side. So I think the entrepreneurial streak definitely, uh, definitely comes from him. Sure. And what do you think you learned from him specifically? Like, was it a mindset thing or was he actively teaching you specific skills and something or? No, I don't think it was skills. I think it was just a mindset. I think sure. it was, you kind of, you don't have to do what you're told. Hmm. You don't have to kind of work for the man. You don't have to necessarily conform and you know there can be more to life than just getting a nine-to-five office job and actually sure. you, you can make your own way and do your own thing and sure. have lots of fun doing it okay and how were you as a student in school then were you kind of rebellious or no not at all no, I was okay. um no I was quite geeky I was um uh -huh. I was quite I was quite a good student um you know kind of middle of the road went to a very good school and okay. they kept you pretty uh, they kept you pretty on the straight and narrow at the school I went to 
Okay, very good. I know you went to university after school then. Yeah. And then you started your tech business relatively soon after. While we were still there, actually, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I went to UCL, studied economics. Yeah. And my best friend from school, who kind of remains one of my best mates now, um, his dad uh, invested in uh, a couple of guys who were like starting to put together the shell of a startup, um, of a startup business. And um, my friend Matt started working for them. Um, just kind of helping them out a couple of days a week on, on starting to build some of the tech stuff. And then, you know, a few weeks in, he asked me to come over and help out as well. And then we became basically a founding team of, of four. And so that was during, I think that was during my second year of uni. Um, and during my third year, I was effectively full time at this business and, and did the degree on the side because you know, we only had to go to lectures one day a week or something. Okay, very good. And how did that experience help you, do you think, with, I guess, founding grind and then to date now growing grind? Yeah, I mean, that the two actually overlap. So uh, grind was a part time project for two years while I still worked full time at uh, Axitech, as it's now known. Um, and I mean, it was an incredible experience like it was like getting paid to do an MBA you know we we were four guys we went and raised about 10 million quid from one of Europe's leading VCs we scaled the business we had you know waves of McKinsey consultants coming in when things weren't going so well we moved offices and we were I was going all around the country and you know dealing with fundraising dealing with the shareholders I mean it was like a crash course in growing a business and you know some of the investors uh, and some of the people from the VC firm became later became investors into Grind because they, you know, were personally supportive of me, even though maybe the first business didn't necessarily work out. So you can't really separate the two stories. Like okay. they, were, they, they were really, you know, I, I don't think I would have had the confidence to do Grind had I not had the experience so young of going uh, on the uh, Axitech journey. Okay, and it was great that things seemed to be moving so quickly, like it was an intense learning period, which is fantastic. Yep. It was really intense. Okay, so, so what inspired you then, um, I guess influenced you to leave that, and what inspired you then to go off and start Grind? Yeah, so um, kind of back, back, to my, back to my dad. So he, uh, he ha as I mentioned, he had mobile phone stores, and he had a few dotted around London. Obviously that business changed a lot over the years. Um, and unfortunately he got uh, prostate cancer um, and passed away about 10 years ago now, um, which was you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to me by a million miles. Mm. Um, and you know, at some point coming out of that, I kind of realized that I'd inherited this small mobile phone business. Mm. And you know, it, was a, it was an okay business, but it certainly wasn't something that I was passionate about. And I didn't see a great future in it because everyone just buys iPhones and has them shipped out now. Like that, that you know, it changed dramatically. Sure. Um, so, but one of the buildings was uh, a small circular building perched on the edge of Old Street Roundabout. And by this point I lived in Shoreditch. Um, I went out a lot in Shoreditch and you know, this is 2011. So the Olympics was just about to open in 2012. Uh, open, the Olympics isn't open, yeah. We're about to have the Olympics in 2012. And you could feel like, the gravitational pull of the Olympics bringing London east. And mm. suddenly, you know, that was happening. All the young people were in Shoreditch and Old Street Roundabout had gone from kind of this no man's land junction somewhere near the city to, you know, tech city, you know, Silicon Roundabout and becoming, starting to become a real hub for East London. And this building was perched right on the edge. And I knew that I wasn't going to give that building back. And I was really attached to it as well. You know, it was very sentimental. I used to work there when I was 13, 14 as a summer job. So really it was, okay, I want to keep this building. What's the best use for it? Mm. And that was kind of where the coffee thing came from. Okay, very good. I guess it was good timing as well. It's the yeah. perfect time the shortage was kind of coming yeah. into its prominence. It was really good timing. Yeah. Like we, we were, you, you know, I, I always say when I tell the story, you know, we've done some good stuff and we've done some good branding and, We've made some good decisions, but you know, luck played a huge part. Sure. Um, we caught the flat white wave really nicely. Yeah. We caught the kind of silicon roundabout wave really nicely. Sure. You know, and it was so lucky to have such an amazing first and, and prominent first location. Sure. Uh, and without that, we probably you know wouldn't be sat here today. Okay. I remember I was actually running a restaurant in Stratford. Okay. So I started in 2011, and we scaled up to the Olympics. Yeah. I remember that transition or shift. Yeah. Like in in the environment, the atmosphere 
just the vibe was completely yeah. different. Completely it just changed, flipped yeah. like yeah. like 180 degrees. I mean, Stratford went from a bit of wasteland between kind of Leytonstone and Victoria Park to suddenly this huge thing. I mean, it was, um, it was exactly. unbelievable. It yeah. was so fast. Yeah, yeah, very good. So why then um, did you start a cafe as opposed to something else? Like, did you consider different options or was it always you wanted to open a, a cafe? Yeah, it's, I actually don't have that much clarity over the exact decision-making process that led okay. us into that. Like, it was obviously, I think, you know, I was a bit all over the place at the time, given what had, mm. given what had happened. Mm. And I don't really remember the decision-making process that clearly. I just remember feeling like it needed to be a meeting point and that it was somewhere where people should be going and spending time, not walking past. Um, yeah. And you know, what do people get together to do? Well, they get together to drink coffee. And I'd seen around the world so much of the independent coffee scene starting to happen. I think that influenced the decision a lot because that hadn't really got to London at that point. Like London was quite late in adopting like flat white culture. So I think it was kind of seeing those things and then this, this need, the feeling that the need for this building was to be a meeting point and then kind of the coffee thing just happened like it, it just that the decision was made and that was what I was going to do and I don't remember a great like debate about should I do coffee or should I do something else or it, it was just you know it was just you know kind of get in and crack on okay okay and I know you've partnered up with with Kaz your good friend DJ um again was that a conscious decision that you felt you needed a partner or was he influencing you on the coffee side of it? I know he's passionate about coffee. Yeah, and Australian so, as well. Yeah, so yeah. so basically, yeah, so Kaz helped me set up the first grind, um, yeah. and obviously remains a shareholder. Um, and uh, basically, Kaz complained about coffee all the time um, in London, as all Australians like to do, and certainly like to do in 2011. And yeah, I don't understand it. Why have you guys done the kind of like the American coffee thing? Yeah, everything here is so great. Restaurants are so great. Everything's so great. But how have you got coffee so wrong? Where's the flat white? Where's the flat white? Like you guys just have no idea about coffee. And, yeah. and that basically made Kaz the most knowledgeable person about coffee in my life. And, you know, I knew that he was great at design. Um, and, you know, I knew he'd be helpful in, in helping, helping me put together a cool brand and get the right vibe. And, uh, you know, he had some money to invest as well because he'd, uh, he'd done well from some of his records and... I, I wasn't, I didn't really want to fully fund it myself. So again, it was a very natural kind of, I'm doing this, do you want to help me out? Yeah, cool, okay, let's do it together. Okay. Like it, it was super, the whole lead in was very, very informal. Okay, okay. And in terms of, I guess you, you had the idea and how did you get that up and running? Like how did you I don't know, change the site into a cafe? Again, was yeah. it, a, ver was it a, <laughs> a formal process or very casual and just kind of, um, I guess dynamic process. It was, a, it was certainly, yeah. I think dynamic would be <laughs> a, a very nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's funny because um, today we're relaunching Shoreditch Grind, having just completely refurbed it for the first time since we opened. Mm. Um, and we closed the site for 13 days to do that, you know, but this is now, I've got a head of property and there's been, the project's been three months in the planning and, you know, it's like clockwork and stuff built off site and, you know, completely ripped out and turned around in 13 days, which is pretty quick. Mm. Um, it was the opposite end of the spectrum when we first did it. You know, we didn't employ an architect. So it was kind of like, you know, build this here, build that there, drawing on the floor and that kind of stuff. And I, I remember we built the bar and then ripped it down because we realized we'd done it in the wrong place and, and built it again. And wow. Kaz flew his brother over from Australia to help because we needed some really cheap labor. And yeah, I mean, we were just completely making it up as we went okay. along. Um, yeah. It was very rock and roll. Okay. Um, and yeah, I remember being there sanding stools at 5 a.m. before the first day we opened at 7 a.m. Uh, and the upstairs wasn't finished at all when we opened. Um, so yeah, it was a long way from a professional first site. Okay, but well, I guess that went some way to creating that kind of East London Shoreditch kind of rough and ready style. Exactly, and yeah, you know, luckily, the building itself was very stripped back mm. and mostly glass and um, yeah, exactly. You know, we, we were certainly played into the industrial thing. Um, I don't think we had a choice because we didn't have much budget to do, uh, to do anything else. Sure. But yeah, and I, and I remember uh, writing a five page business plan for the uh, asset finance company to try and lease 15 grand's worth of machine or something because you know, we completely ran out of money by wow. the end of it. And 
Uh, I, remember, I remember going to get my last 500 quid in the world, basically, to put in the till on the first day. Um, you know, it was properly, it was properly bootstrapped, okay. as they say. Very good. Um, and in terms of challenges you had kind of starting up, what, what did you encounter? And also, I guess in hindsight, what would you have done different in, in that process as well? Yeah, we, I mean, a million challenges along this, along this journey of growth, but we, we were very lucky to have such a good first location. Mm. And I think, you know, we did a couple of, we did a couple of smart things. Like we put a big cinema sign up outside, which people really liked. Mm. And, you know, we focused, we really focused on the staff and the product and kept it ultra simple at the start. Um, and that, because we did that, luckily, you know, <coughs> enough people came on day one and day two and day three and week two and week four and week five and it just mm. built and it became, it was cash generative instantly. So we didn't put any more money in from the beginning and that was really lucky um, and, re and really fortunate that it was like that. So that, and that gave us a lot of breathing space to then fix all of the mistakes that we'd made because we made loads. So. Um, you know, we changed stuff and we, we changed the layout of bars and we realized we bought the wrong till system and we realized we bought the wrong this and but we just slowly iterated and iterated and iterated. So uh, there were loads of mistakes and, and loads of challenges, but if you've got the core of kind mm. of something that people want, sure, you can have enough breathing space to figure that out. Sure. So it's almost focusing on the core offering and experience. Yeah, exactly. Which is the, the uh, food, the drink, the team, the service, the music, which you were very keen on as well. Absolutely, yeah. And, and make, the making, it, making it an experience and, and yeah. the environment. And, and we, we really focused on that from the beginning. And that meant all the little operational and you know, food hygiene and regulations and mm. all of this stuff, mm. you could figure that out over the first kind of six months, basically and the people coming through the door were able to help fund you figuring that out and just basically gave you breathing space. Okay. And so then onto your second site, you took yeah. an appear here site, I think, wasn't it? Was it no, our second, site was, um, our second site was Soho Grind Aha, okay. in Soho. Um, and then, yeah, we did something with appear here. Uh, I think that might have been site three or site four. We, okay. we popped up in uh, we popped up in Piccadilly Circus Station for a little bit. Okay. No, but the second, uh, the second proper site was was Soho Grind. Okay. And yeah, the, by the time we did that, you know, by the time we did that, Shoreditch Grind had been going for um, you know a couple of years. I'd left the tech business. Uh, you know, I'd fully exited that and gone full time, taken our first external capital, um, and, and it took me about nine months to you know to find and choose and select and close um, our first external investment uh, from a guy called John Ayton who founded Links of London um, and he's been heavily involved in All of Our Brown which just sold to Chanel recently and Bremont watches and kind of luxury British brands like that really um, and yeah we lined up Soho, Piccadilly, Holborn and London Bridge I was lining those up while I closed the deal with them so I think kind of February 14, I cl closed the finance, closed the financing with him, officially went full time, opened a little central office in Soho and then opened Soho, Holborn and London Bridge in about 10 months in quite oh, wow. quick succession. So it was a proper little sprint, but we'd been, lead been leading into that uh, for kind of nine months while I closed the deal in, in parallel with John. Okay. And because you had that, I guess, quick pipeline of locations coming up, did you focus on, I guess, getting systems in place in the first site? Or yeah. any prep work at all for them? Or you just went for it? Um, I wish I'd focus more on systems. Uh -huh. I, I spent the whole of 2017 and 18 basically focusing on nothing but systems once we were about nine sites or something. Okay. Um, no, look, I think we were still very much figuring it out. Um, mm. You know. We definitely refined what we had in Shoreditch a lot, and I decided to build in some tech, um, mobile ordering app, I think, uh, and certainly, you know, strapping iPads to coffee machines so we could get rid of paper tickets and mm. reconfiguring the bar and getting better equipment. And obviously, we'd added cocktails by then as well, so we were open in the evening selling cocktails, and so we'd had to modify the space and the bar to sell cocktails. So we'd refined the offer quite a lot. Yeah. And 
we'd worked on you know we'd worked on our delivery of that but mm. we hadn't yet done the kind of the systems and the margins and the labor management stuff that that comes later okay. and then when we started opening more sites we, we made the huge mistake of um doing a different offer in every site not completely different obviously the coffee menu is the same but you know when we opened we had a different cocktail list in every single site and, mm. and we kept going with that until about seven sites or something you know so the food menu would be different and the cocktail offer would be different and the logic behind that was you know okay we've got shoreditch grind soho grind london grind like they're all supposed to be local they're all designed individually they're mm. designed to they're designed around Stand the building their own as well yeah as well. they're, they're supposed to be their own um their own kind of thing and i took mm. great inspiration from so house group who obviously do shoreditch house soho house white city house and they they have different offerings and different menus on different sites um mm. and that was kind of the model that we thought we were going to follow but then you realize kind of you know seven sites in that this is just you know all of a sudden i've got 400 different products across mm. these sites and mm. i've got no idea where my margins are mm. or you're not getting efficiencies consist- of scale you're not as getting well. any efficiencies of scale consistencies all over the place because you know it's not been this dish hasn't been photographed and documented because you can't because there's 400 of them and so that was a huge learning curve you know and we just continue to build in complexity to the business basically like okay. without realizing it okay well it sounds like from the very early stages for the first few years like you're really focused on the customer experience that's yeah. the kind of the front end yeah and then the back end kind of has refined as you've gone along yeah like, i like mean the most important was the yeah. front side yeah. really yeah now i think we're kind of best in class at the back end stuff and we have videos on everything and training guides and we have a grind academy where we onboard 20 people a week and train them and margins and systems for days but yeah back then it was just all about you know it was all about the front end sure. and we only really focused on the customer experience and how it was from this side of the counter and i think you know this is my first hospitality job um and i think uh and, and same with kaz really um and i think that forced us or that meant that naturally we were kind of good from this side of the bar and not from that side of the bar so we let the people on that side of the bar who were good at it get on with it and we just refined you know what they were making how they were doing it and the environment that the customer was in okay okay and how do you choose your locations even now or has your process changed like since the beginning it's yeah quite it's, a critical thing, obviously. it's the single hardest thing yeah. um well no it's not the single hardest thing having a uh, having a great team and keeping them motivated is the single hardest thing but property is a big challenge mm. um because it's very it's, it's imperfect by its and it's opportunity driven you know mm. it's not it's this corner or not it's not i wish it was this corner but it didn't have these stairs or it had better like it's it's defined right like it is what it is so mm. it's very imperfect it's very uh opportunity driven as i said um and you just have to be out there, be in touch with all of the agents, get to know all of the landlords. We've been very lucky that we've done lots of deals directly. So our second site, Soho, we took directly from Shaftesbury. Uh, our site in Covent Garden, we took directly from Capco, who run the whole of Covent Garden, and kind of the list goes on. Like most of the most of the deals, we've been speaking to landlords, and they like the brand, and then they say, "Oh, we've got this coming up. Would you like to have a look at it?" And then we have a look at it, and it's kind of before it's even hit the market a lot. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no silver bullet to property. You have to just be out there, know everyone, um, and then move really fast when okay. you think you get the right opportunity. Okay. And look at a lot of sites, probably. And look at okay. a lot of sites. I guess that process gets easier as you grow and you become more established. And Do you know what? I think it gets harder. Really? Yeah, okay. because um, because the, you know, when you know a bit less, you kind of don't see all the flaws in a site mm. whereas like the more you know the more you see every floor in a site mm. so it's like yeah you kind of you get to know that you know what the perfect thing for me is three thousand three and a half thousand square feet single floor plate floor to ceiling glass listed building flat entrance in needs an extraction route needs this much power and you didn't even kind of know all of those things at the start so yeah. it's almost like it gets harder and harder because you're the standard of what you want and, and how fussy you are goes up and up and up, but you, you definitely get more experience. Sure, interesting. So you mentioned there a little bit about, let's say, economies of scale and getting systems yeah. and consistencies in place as you grow. But in terms of, I guess, getting the balance of um, the consistency of the brand elements, 
yeah. people recognize that it's you. They're getting the same level of experience in each grind. Yeah. Um, but you're also keeping a level of uniqueness, which is obviously, I think, more important these days. Yep. So the cookie cutter approach doesn't work anymore. Like, how do you get that balance? How do you achieve that? And especially, sorry, so you started in East London as well, just that yep. quirky kind of hipstery style. Yep. And you've opened kind of more and more, I guess, formal locations like Canary Wharf and the city. Yep. So again, how do you get that balance? Yeah, look, I think, I think you just have to constantly evolve. So. Mm. Um, you can never stand still. Like, it's never finished. Like it's never like, okay, this is the final menu we're ever going to do, or this is the final fit out we're ever going to do. You know, as I said, we've just just going back around now, starting to refurb some of the earlier sites, and we're extending again and refurbing our site in London Bridge, which is one of our best sites. And I think we've always taken the approach, or I've always taken the approach of um, over the years, it's about it's about refining and defining what the key things that people come to you are. So what are the key brand elements and what are the key products? So, you know, for us now, we know that it's, you know, we like a big bar you can sit around. We love to use marble. We love to use marble for the tables. We like nice, comfortable furniture to create a relaxed environment. We like to enhance the natural character of the building and we normally take listed buildings. So if there's some brick to expose or a ceiling to expose or some old floor tiles or, you know, let's, let's expose all of that and then let's drop in the kind of the grind elements of the marble bar and the plants and the nice light fittings and then let's you know put in our soundtrack which we work really really hard at um you know from our recording studio in shoreditch and then let's drop in the team and, and they're kind of you know they're the key elements to to building a grind and you just have to react a little bit to what you think the local audience wants mm. so our site outside bank station in royal exchange is a grade one listed building, you know, and I think only one and a half percent of listed buildings are grade one. So it ranks the same as Buckingham Palace. Um, and which means you're incredibly restricted about what you can do. And we just basically filled the place with marble and made it quite high end because obviously your average customer coming in there is wearing a suit and they're gonna feel more comfortable and it, and it feels more appropriate to have that kind of environment than say somewhere like Shoreditch where it's obviously, you know, your average person is not wearing a suit and it's much, much more rough and ready. But at the same time, you've got to get consistency of brand mm. and that comes through the product and the service. So having the same flat white in every location made exactly the same in the same cup to the same specs. And, you know, consistency is just everything in hospitality and, and you have to be consistent with the product. And if you can achieve kind of complete consistency of product, getting the brand across, but also make each one a bit of a unique experience, then, then that's a nice balance. Okay, very good. So we're all fully aware, obviously, of the high street struggling, yeah. uh, a lot of restaurant chains struggling. I think the hospitality sector in general uh, has been quite erratic and yeah. uh, quite difficult trading circumstances, I suppose. Uh, you guys have done very well. I think in particular, 2018, you were 19% year on yeah. year, which is phenomenal, I think, yeah. in the current climate. How did you achieve that? Um, what's your special recipe <laughs> yeah look i think it's no secret that it's been incredibly challenging in the hospitality sector and there's been a huge number of casualties and obviously you know don't need to list all the names of the cvas i think everyone's aware but um and it's tough look and we're not we're not immune from that at all and you know i know personally very well lots of the founders of lots of great businesses who are on a similar journey to us, you know, one site to 20 sites, wh wherever they might be on that journey. And everyone in particular has found the last kind of, the last six months to nine months, I'd say tougher than ever, mm. particularly in the lead up to, uh, you know, you know as, as the, all the Brexit stuff was happening at the end of last year and the election, mm. um, it's, been, it's been tough and, and consumer sentiment and demand is definitely dampened and, then you start to overlay things like Deliveroo and people, you know, choosing to maybe stay in a bit more, and then the kind of the huge growth of the experiential stuff, um, you know, and people playing golf and throwing darts and throwing axes and all that kind of stuff. You know, mm. there's just pressure from every direction. Um, we just focus really hard on making every single experience really good, um, and uh, we hope that that, you know, is the right thing to be focused on, and and 
what you need to do is come to grind every single day and hopefully come multiple times a day. And what's great with, you know, because we are breakfast, lunch, dinner, weekend brunch, morning coffee, evening cocktails, you know, our customers who like us tend to use us multiple times per week, if not multiple times per day. And, you know, if you go to Soho Grind in the morning and stand there, you know, nine out of 10 people don't even order. They just walk in and the baristas know who they are and they know what they want. And instead of spending time chatting about the order, they just chat about their day or how are you, what's going mm. on today, you know, and that, that kind of loyalty is amazing. Mm. Um, and you just have to never take that for granted, basically, and just continue to work at it, make sure you remain best in class as a product, make sure the service is amazing, make sure the sites are all looking good, you know, you've got to reinvest in the estate, and it's just a lot of, a lot of simple but kind of hard work things. You know, it's really hard. We are, our team's about 300 people now, so it's, it's incredibly challenging to get 300 great people who are motivated and engaged doing the correct thing according to the brand standards mm. at all times in multiple locations, mm. seven days a week. So, you know, we have a, an amazing central team who support the teams in the sites at trying to achieve that. And, I, and the customers can tell. Mm. The customers can tell when, when the management is, is interested or, or is disengaged. You know, mm. it comes through across the whole business. And you just have to stay super on top of things. Mm. So again, it's focusing on the front end things, really. Again, it's yeah, the important, the important yeah. elements. Yeah, and never taking the customer or their loyalty for granted. Sure. I think that's really important. You know, um, don't think you can just endlessly jack up prices or make portions smaller or, you know, to do things to kind of, that the accountants like to do to businesses, basically. Mm. Um, you, you can never, you can never take, take the customer for granted because mm. there's so much choice. Sure. I was actually in Grind in Clerkenwell yesterday, and I probably had to stay in my time there. I was there for three hours probably on a laptop. Yep. And um, the manager came over to me and gave me a free cappuccino. It was probably a wrong order or something. They weren't giving you yep. free cappuccinos. Yeah, good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, it was such a nice gesture yep. where they could have gave it to staff or yep. the chef or whatever. But that gesture coming over say, would you like a cappuccino? Um, it was like, wow. It was that good. wow moment. It was like, okay, good. amazing. They do care. Yeah. Um, they're, they're there to please and to make the customer happy. Yeah. Um, it's such a nice thing. Oh, a little small thing as well. Yeah. No, yeah, we, we encourage the teams to do, we give them a weekly budget for kind of surprise and delight, which is, I think, what you're talking about. Okay. Just little, creating little moments like that. And, and the, teams, yeah, the teams love to do that. I think also similarly, if you're trying to do that in one of the other sides, you'd get kicked out. And, you know, and we, when I say kicked out, you know, but we, you know, we encourage the teams to not be afraid to say, you know, thanks so much, is there anything else? If not, I need the table for someone else. Because I think it's a two-way relationship with the customer. And I think you have to be really honest in both directions. Because, you know, if we've got a queue for people looking for a table, sure, I'm afraid that we can't have you sit here and work for three hours. But at the same time, you know, as you said yesterday, in, on, at the other end of that, let's, if someone is there and we don't need the table, then do you know what, let's get them another coffee on us and look after them. Exactly. And I think people, you build a relationship with the customer over multiple uh, you know, over years sometimes. Sure. So I think that's, that's really important. Sure. And it's almost, I, I, well, I put it down to like a cultural thing and it's emotional yeah. intelligence and yeah, the intangibles, exactly. which really take you to the next level. So you mentioned team and people are probably the hardest thing. Yeah. And I probably agree, I think, in the industry yeah. at the moment. How do you, I guess, how do you find the right people? How do you keep them? And then how do you achieve that culture across multiple sites? How do you get that consistency? Super difficult. I That's a big question. Yeah. Um, look, the team is just absolutely everything. So mm. we have uh, Lucy, our people director, who's amazing, and her team um, of people who are kind of recruiting and onboarding and training. Um, <coughs> it starts from, you know, it starts from the moment of like, what kind of language do you use in the job advert? And what questions do you ask? Because that's immediately starting to suggest the culture to the person that's applying. And then we kind of have a filtering process to try and, you know, get the people that, that we think are right for the brand. So generally kind of younger, highly energetic, really interesting, really engaged people we look for who are really passionate. Um, and then we, I mean, we haven't always done this. We haven't always had the resource to do this, but you know, so. So now we'll do open days and you know, 70, 80, 100 people might come along, which is amazing because you know, they wanna come and work for us, which is great. 
and then you know those who we select go into two two solid days of induction um, so that's two days of learning how to make coffee learning how to make cocktails you know I'll spend half an hour with them and this happens every fortnight um, and I'll tell them the story and tell them you know why I get out of bed in the morning and try and kind of get across that they're working for me and my team not a boardroom full of people that they're never going to meet and that we all really really care and what we expect from the teams and what we're going to give them in return in terms of you know training and opportunity and progression and and development and then we get them into the sites and you know we support them a lot and we check in with them and have coffee chats with them and the managers take over then and we're having coffee chats every couple of weeks and we'll put people on uh, development programs to try and um, let them grow within the business and, and again like, it's just it's just a lot of energy and, and working really hard at managing and supporting our people to do what they can and then building systems so that they can spend as much as their as much as possible of their time with customers smiling and having fun and not kind of sat in the office at the back filling out paperwork sure and I guess well, from my experience as well the culture is really instilled from the top down yeah. So I guess it's how you're acting in and around the teams yeah. and then the senior management team as well. Yeah, so. I think, I think yeah, everyone talks about culture. Yeah. And, um, you know, our, our people director is our director of people and culture. And, and we kind of, we put it in the title because it's so important. And we have an amazing culture. And I think that grew, that grew without trying up into about 100, 150 people. And it was only really then that we kind of realised, okay, We've got an amazing culture here. We need to work at maintaining it. So that means, you know, just things like communicating better with the staff, mm. having Facebook groups where everyone can respond. We have um, we have something called Junior Board, which is where I spend a day with one nominated person from each site, just talking about everything once a quarter, so that they feel really connected mm. um, to me. And then, yeah, I think you know, obviously, it's my job to to set the culture and the approach of the business to the senior management team who then go and kind of implement it on site. And we have lots of big parties and prizes and send people on trips around the world if they achieve certain targets and all that kind of stuff, basically to make it a fun place to work. Like, and you can't, you can't fake that stuff. Like sure. it has to be real. Like it has to, either it's a fun place to work and everyone's engaged sure. or they're not. It, sure. It's quite black and white. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, so what are your plans then for growth? You've obviously grown quite quickly over the yep. last few years. Is that growth expected to continue or how do you see the future unfolding? Yeah, so we, we've got a few sites this year. So we are, we're extending London Bridge, our best site at the moment. Um, we're gonna be opening in Southbank shortly. We'll be opening in Canary Wharf later this year. We've got our first couple of um, uh, franchise travel locations opening with our franchise partners. So they're in kind of key mainline rail stations and then hopefully in the next year or so, some airport stuff. So there's plenty of growth going on. I mean, we're not going for a hundred sites. Like we're not going for, you know, just a modest pace of, you know, a few sites a year, getting the sites right, continuing to invest in the old, I say the old, the, you know, the current estate. And I think, again, it's very easy to, I think the danger that people get into when they're in rollout mode and they're trying to do 10 sites a year is they forget about the original sites. And, and the original sites or, or the, you know, the last wave of sites are the one that's making the money to, to help fuel this expansion. And mm. then, uh, so it's really important that we continue to invest in the existing estate. Um, and then we've got our retail, our retail range. So we, about just over a year ago now, we launched our uh, pink coffee tins and they are kind of the new version of the Illy coffee tin, as I see it. Um, and you can get compostable Nespresso pods or bean or ground coffee in those, and you can buy them in our stores, on our website, places like Amazon, Ocado, in Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, um, Sainsbury's at the moment, a few places like that. So that's the whole kind of direct to consumer arm. And then there's a subscription element to that as well, where we you know, encourage our customers to subscribe and we'll ship them letterbox friendly refills so they can keep their tin rather than throwing it away. And it kind of stops, stops the waste. So, Really excited about that part of the business as well. And we're investing quite heavily into that part with a, a large new coffee roasting facility in Elephant and Castle that we opened about nine months ago um, that we're scaling up there to keep up with the demand. So yeah, there's plenty going on. Always okay. plenty going on. Sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the franchise there. 
So obviously the franchise partner, um, I guess, supports and well operates in the transport hubs, which yep. makes it an easier way to scale up yep. in those areas. Yep. Um, was it just that fact that drove that decision or is it to accelerate scale? And would you consider franchising kind of a non-transport hubs? Um, we're not looking at franchising outside of transport hubs at the okay. moment. Um, we, we would potentially do uh, some joint ventures in, in key international cities with local partners because we think that doing that, that's a safer and easier way to move into international uh, sites by partnering with someone locally who knows mm. the market and, uh, and that kind of thing. Sure. But no, I, I think in terms of the travel hub specifically, you know, they're very demanding places to operate and it's kind of a, a speciality operating in those locations. So if you think that, you, you know, if you think how hard it is to operate any kind of hospitality business, if you then overlay the fact that all of the staff have got to be security screened three months before their first shift and, you know, if you're talking about somewhere like Heathrow and every every bottle of milk has got to be x-rayed on the way in. You know, when you overlay the, mm. and then you overlay how busy it is, you know, all day, every day, and the, you know, the extended opening hours to virtually 24 hour opening in some of these locations, it's a real specialty operating in those kind of environments. Mm. So I think it makes sense to, to partner with someone who has a central kitchen at that airport or train station already supporting five different things there and they've got a central management team overseeing all of the sites so uh, it's very much a we think it makes sense to partner with someone for travel okay makes sense okay um it'd be great to talk about the current market and in particular competitors you have in the space yeah and obviously there's more and more similar style coming into the market uh, i think there's twenty-four thousand coffee shops in the uk it's a wow. huge amount so how do you stay ahead of those? You mentioned you kind of continue to refine what you're doing and adopt to the consumer, but the consumer is also changing as well. Like yep. going to food halls, as an example, like you said, yep. deliveries to the home. Yep. Like how are you staying ahead of the trends or staying up with the trends even and competing? Yeah. I mean, we are, you know, we've evolved to be effectively an alcohol led business. So, um, you know, our biggest source of revenue is alcohol now. And that's, you know, that's because an espresso martini is mm. nine pounds and a, and a flat white is three pounds, right? So on a revenue basis, uh, even if not on a volume basis, we are alcohol led. So I think our evolution has been from being an, you know, an A1 focused grab and go coffee operator to a, an A3, A4, much larger format all day, all night. And opening up all of those different day parts has been the key to our, you know, success to this point. Um, and certainly, you know, doing the grab and go A1 thing is, is incredibly difficult in London now. Um, mm. Just with the margins and property property prices and those kind of stuff, you know, just very, very economically challenging. Um, in terms of staying ahead um, or, or staying kind of staying relevant, I guess, um, we are, we're lucky that, well, I say we're lucky, we're fortunate that the the key product lines that we sell are obviously coffee and you know people are just drinking more and more and more coffee and their yeah. demand for high quality coffee and their acceptance of poor quality coffee is is continuing to evolve in our favor um a lot of cocktails um a hell of a lot of cocktails and again you know people people love cocktails people are drinking more cocktails than ever and we refresh our cocktail list and work really really hard at it um you know, on a quarterly basis. And so that allows us to innovate in the cocktail, uh, you know, in the, the bar part of the business. And then because we're not kind of, you know, grind burger or grind pizza, we, we have flexibility in the food menu to evolve that and respond to trends. So mm. look, we're always gonna, you know, I'm sure our best-selling breakfast dish will be smashed avocado and poached eggs for many years to come, but mm. you can play with the rest of the menu. And so, you know, like the whole rest of the world, we've been introducing more and more vegan stuff recently. And, and we have flexibility that we're not completely tied to pizza or tacos or whatever it might be. So mm. we can adapt and evolve and respond to trends within the context of grind okay makes sense and you mentioned well obviously um making the most of each day part um, yeah. um throughout the day which you've obviously done very successfully but you've also um, extended into different revenue streams for example the online yeah. subscription the nespresso capsules for yeah. example how important are those revenue streams to the business 
look, I think if you can find in any business, if you can find opportunities to uh, you know, leverage the brand in other ways into different areas, then, then why wouldn't you? As long as it's not too distracting and it's not too much of um, an investment. And look, there's lots of things we could have done there's lots of directions we could have gone in, but the things that we've done, we've, we've, we feel support our overall kind of brand values and mission as a brand. So to me, it makes much more sense for us to be coming into your home and you, you enjoying, as a consumer, grind coffee at home mm. at the weekend and coming to us for coffee five <laughs> days a week during the week than it does that I would start supplying wholesale coffee to lots of other cafes. Like, so, you know, we could have taken a wholesale route um, I and mean, lots of kind of coffee roasters do. Um, but we, we want to focus much more on having a direct relationship with the customer and building a brand mm. that, you know, hopefully one day um, someone might want to, you know, help us scale it up to the next level. And I think you get that value and you create value for your shareholders by, by building a brand and, and making sure that everything you do, if you do go into new areas, it's all supporting the kind of the central theme of the business and not just something that feels completely random and disconnected. I think that, that can be the challenge with, with trying to find new revenue streams. Sure, makes sense. And I guess because you've done so well in building that brand, you've built a big following like yeah. online and big awareness and exposure uh, for the brand. Yeah. Uh, that obviously helped with your, with your crowdfunding campaigns. Yeah. Super successful. Yeah. So you've done three now, I think. Yeah. So yeah all amazingly successful. Yeah, really good. Um, so how did you go about doing that? And I mean, in terms of building the awareness that the campaign was coming on stream and then like achieving your target in a day in one of them, which is like phenomenal. How, how did you achieve that? Yeah, I think, you know, social media has always been uh, an important part of the brand. And I think we talk about, we talked at the start about some of the waves that we've ridden, you know, and we definitely... We definitely were lucky with the timing of the kind of the East London wave and the flat white coffee wave. You know, we hit those quite nicely. And I think another one that we hit really nicely was the Instagram wave. You know, we mm. when we started, we were, we were using Twitter mostly and then Instagram came out and we quite quickly recognized that um, we thought Instagram was gonna effectively take over and become the primary platform. Uh, and so we kind of quite early on ditched everything else um, or certainly stopped focusing on everything else and focused very heavily on Instagram and that grew our audience very quickly and we made some conscious decisions like you know at one point I remember ripping out all the marble ta uh, wooden tables and replacing them with marble because it looked better and obviously now every beauty blogger now has a thing of marble at home where they photograph stuff on because it looks better but this is mm. kind of this is very early days and so while we never while we never set out to I think there's a balance between what we've done is make our products really, really presentable and make the places photographed well through using premium materials and high levels of design. But we always, I, I never want to stray into the kind of the novelty stuff where mm. you're building flower walls for Instagram. Like that, that's just not me and that's not our brand. But mm. having something that is visually really strong and really striking and photographs well is, is definitely important. And I think it was those kind of decisions that led us to, to, build, to build the brand. And, and really it was the brand that enabled the crowdfunding. Um, you know, people invested in it because they loved the brand. And you know, the biggest kick I ever get is when I, you know, I mentioned to someone, someone asked me what I do and I say, I've got Grind. And they're like, oh my God, I love Grind. Like, brand is so amazing, I go to this one. and like. And that brand piece is is everything to me, and it's always been my focus to to build a brand that people love because I think that's incredibly powerful. Um, and really, it was the brand that people invested in because they believed in what we were doing, and that was what enabled the success of the crowdfunding raises. Okay, what would you have done different, if anything, for the crowdfunding, or what what did you learn from the whole process? I think. Look, I think there are lots of things I would do differently through the journey of the business as a whole. I think we've been really lucky with the crowdfunding. I don't mm. think I'd, I don't think I'd change anything. I mean, I think okay. we did um, we did a 1.3 million pound bond back in 2015 when Crowdcube was uh, still doing debt, uh, and we uh, you know we repaid that early uh, last year, which was great. So it's great to have paid everyone their eight percent and then paid them back in full because that hasn't happened 
uh, across the board. You know, lots of people unfortunately have not been paid back. So mm. I was really pleased to pay that back. And then we did a, <coughs> uh, a 2.1 million raise in 2017 in a couple of days, as you mentioned, went very, very fast. And then uh, 3.4 million at the kind of the beginning of last year, which again, you know, went in a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, I think from a hospitality perspective, I think we're one of the, one of the, if not the, um, you know, largest recipient of, of crowdfunding in the UK. And it's been a really important part of our story. And we've got now 3,000 uh, 3, investors or so who are, you know, aligned with me for our success. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And, and they love bringing their friends and they love to tell their friends that they've invested and they support the brand and throw their Christmas parties with us and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and it helps create a movement. Okay. Okay. You mentioned, um, well, I guess having the instinct that you thought Instagram was going to be the main social media platform. Was that something you felt like personally? Or like, how did you know <laughs> that that was going to happen? Was it a visual thing or you just saw it kind of growing and growing? Uh, yeah, I'm, I think, um, you know, we talked a lot about people and um, our creative director, Ted, has been with us since almost the beginning now. Um, you know, young Central St. Martins art student graduate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he and I have made uh, most of the design and brand decisions together for a long time now. And he was utterly convinced that Instagram was was the future and, and I was very sure as well and if we both think it that kind of makes you feel better about it than you know, if, if I disagree with him or he disagrees with me then you might question it a bit more but sure. it, it became very clear to both of us quite early on I think that was just gut feel to be honest that was just gut feel with how the platform worked and the direction it seemed to be going in um, and it just seemed better at communicating you know hospitality is very visual right like mm. it's hard to communicate a flat white through words on twitter but like when you see it and it's in a red cup with amazing latte art on marble in nice light in a nice backdrop it's like okay well i understand this brand same with a plate of food or a sharing plate in the evening or a cocktail like these things are easier to communicate visually and I think that's why it's been so important for hospitality. Okay, makes sense. So how has your role changed personally? Obviously you said at the very beginning you are in there building yourself practically. Yeah. To now we've got multiple sites scaling up, big team yeah. around you, including yeah. a senior management team. Yeah. Was that a hard transition like throughout that period? Oh, it was and wonderful. How was it was yeah. That? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, at the start you're, you're everything and everyone. You're, you're the finance director and the people director and the ops director and the brand team and and you're not even just the director you're the whole teams as well so and that's really like it's tough to to do everything um and but you do have to do everything and you're the person on the end of the phone that gets the phone call when something stops working or when the toilet's broken or you know literally everything and i did that for a couple of years in parallel with a full-time job um at the last business which was effectively a full-time job so that was tough and no it's great uh, uh, you know when you get the resources to uh, start employing people who are much better at these individual things than you mm. it's great you know and, and all of my senior management team are far better at their specialism than I ever was at pretending to do it um, and yeah I'm not I'm not kind of one of the people who one of these people who finds it really hard to let go mm. you, you know I'm I'm all over all of the detail and involved in all key decisions, but at the same time, it's kind of like, look, this is where we need to go. You and your team figure out how to get there. Mm. You know, and increasingly, you know, when we're sitting in management meetings, you know, I, I, we get involved in these conversations and it's just like, look, guys, listen, you don't need me to decide this. You know what to do. You know, let's move on next point because they know what to do, but it's my job to just kind of manage the culture as we talked about, mm. make the key decisions about how we're gonna expand, where we're gonna expand, and keep everyone really just motivated and engaged and heading in the same direction and mm. keep the organization functioning well. Mm. Again, you're focusing on the, the right things, really, the, the key elements, the, the important bits, really. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and not, no one likes to be spoon-fed, you know? Mm. Like if you, if you treat people like children, they act like children. If you treat them like grown-ups, they, they tend to act like grown-ups, in my experience, mm. almost exclusively. Like, mm -hmm. um, and you've got to choose the people that you trust. And if you don't trust those people, then it's just a waste of time. Mm. And if you micromanage them, you're demonstrating to them that you don't trust them. Mm. Sure. So what drives you personally? And what 
keeps you going like through the tough times do you have something like really pushing you or do you have i don't know a vision that you really want to achieve and why is that i think it's a combination of loving the business and being really excited by it and being really excited by the future um and being terrified of it all collapsing and, and it and it failing and because that's you know i think at any level you're always scared that something's going to go wrong and it's it's going to break or there's, it's going to collapse in some way and, and that would be awful um so i think it's you know a bit of carrot and a bit of stick kind of keeps you keeps you going really but i think you have to you have to enjoy it on some level like if you don't love it it's never going to work you know mm. for me there's not really there's not a david outside of work and a david at work you know it's all it's all just one sure. um you know and particularly in the industry that i'm in you know Last night I met um, a group of my mates in one of my sites for some drinks and at the weekend I'll probably meet my mum for brunch in one of my locations. So it's like, it's all very... Merged. It's very merged together. Yeah, there's no, so, you know, there's no kind of real work-life balance because it's just not as, it's not as clean, it's not as clean as simple as that. Um, and that's a great thing and also it can be a, it can be a challenge. But I think if you don't, in a business like hospitality, if you don't love it, it's doomed because mm. you have to be there all the time and you have to be all over all things. And, and if you stop caring, the whole organisation will stop caring. Mm. Okay. And how do you switch off then? Like, do you have, do you take weekends off and how do you just, or do you take the business out of your mind at all? Is it just no, constant? not really. It's constant. Yeah. Okay. It's just constant. Uh, but, th but that sounds like, you know, that can make it sound like, all I ever do is work and all I ever think about is work. And it's, that's not the case, um, you know, and the best switching off to me is to fly far, far away and getting a very different time zone and put 12 hours between me and the business. Basically, that's the best way to switch off. But, you know, it's kind of like, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's a bit like having a kid. Like I think, um, you know, my friends that have got kids tell me there's life before and there's life after and it's just never the same again. And even if you're not with them, you don't forget about them, but also you don't necessarily want to forget about them. Like, mm. I, I don't, I'm not looking for escape from the business. If anything, sometimes when I'm away, I'm excited to get back and get cracking again. So it's just a different, it's hard to express, but it's just a completely different thing. Like the business is always on my mind in some way or some form. And, and you know, we trade 20 hours a day, seven days a week in lots of our locations. So or in some of our locations anyway, um, we certainly trade seven days a week in most of them. So kind of never really sleeps and it's it's never off and I'm never fully off from it and, and but that's fine like that doesn't that doesn't mean there's not other great things in my life and um uh, and I'm I'm quite happy with that to be honest it's sure. not something like I don't need to escape from it sure. I like the kid analogy it's yeah quite cool. it's a nice way of putting it and I guess the baby cries during the night as well so it, exactly it never switches off it, it just it just yeah. and it's there right like there's no you can't you might go away and leave the baby at home for a few weeks, but you don't forget about it and you don't... You gotta make sure it's safe. And, exactly, yeah. and, you've gotta, and you've gotta make sure someone's looking after it and mm. you probably wanna call home a lot or look on the camera or whatever it is and mm. check in. And it's, it's, the, it's the same as that, it really sure. is like, especially when you've grown it yourself from, from literally nothing. Mm. Very good. So what's one thing you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting or when you had that initial idea? Oh my God. Um, one thing, like wow. one thing that would have really, I don't know, allowed you to scale quicker or not encounter a big challenge. I think I would have. Um, I think if I could, if I could rewrite our history, I think I would be um, maybe a little more cautious on the speed at which we tried to tried to grow in some of the phases mm -hmm. you know doing <clears throat> doing four or five locations in a year with a really small team mm. was really tough mm. and it nearly broke us and I think uh, I think yeah maybe don't be in such a hurry and, and kind of moderate the speed a little bit but at the same time you got to go for it got to go for it and the opportunities were there and I don't regret any of the opportunities I'm glad we did what we did so I think you know I think a similar question a similar question to kind of what's the one thing would you change would be what's the one bit of advice that you might give to someone else who mm. is doing this a common kind of 
a common question and I always give the same answer to that, which is just get on with it. Like I think, you know, it's never been cheaper or easier or faster to start a business and there's never been more opportunity. And you can start a business with an Instagram page, right? And so many people spend so long talking and thinking and planning and telling their friends and family about this business that they're going to start, this thing they're going to do. And I know people that have been that have been doing that chat for years, like literally years talking about it. And like at some point, you've got to go left or right of the fork. And left is I'm doing it and right is I'm not. And you've just got to get on or off the fence mm. and crack on. And so uh, though, you know, coming back to the question, though, I regret, not not regret, but though, you know, if I could rewrite history, I might moderate the pace a little bit at the start. At the same time, I'm glad that we all had the courage of our kind of convictions to say, okay, we're going to roll out and we're going to go for it. So sure. you can't have both, right? Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, David. Thanks very much. Oh, pleasure. Thank you've you. You've done incredibly well and best of luck going forward. Thank you very much. Thanks very Come much. Come to grind. Buy a coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Or a cocktail. <laughs> nice one. Cheers.